Welcome to the Wealth Studying Podcast. This is episode 183. Today is April 25th, 2016. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, in today's episode, I'm going to give you the long-awaited market review that I've been promising. I know I've heard from many, many of you asking me to do this. I've been putting this off because we were entering into earnings reports in this uh, you know, first quarter earnings announcement season. A lot of things had to really play out, and we're in the midst of that right now. And I think by the close of next week, we'll have heard from the majority of the S&P 500 companies as to their first quarter earnings. Since earnings are so crucial and since, you know, the guidance of forward earnings are what really matter, I, I didn't want to speculate or postulate on all kinds of uncertainties. I wanted to see where earnings were coming out. And I also wanted to wait until it had settled down and some of the weaker sectors of the stock market had gotten shaken out following this big run-up that we've seen since February 11th. So I think we're in that place now. In this episode, I'm going to give you a pretty extensive breakdown of where I think the markets are, what sectors have been rotated out of, and which ones have been rotated into. Before we get started, I do briefly want to cover some of the things that I've gotten a lot of questions from, from the audience about, but I'm really not going to cover. And that's because these are either things that are so far out of our sphere of influence, they don't matter, or they're things that we just can't predict, or they're things that are so much baked into the reality of the markets that we're in now, it almost just doesn't matter to discuss them. In a lot of episodes, I dedicate time to talking about the stock market because that seems to be where the most interest is. But obviously, we talk about entrepreneurial things, building your own business, saving. I mean, there's a, there are a lot of aspects of wealth, and that's why I named this podcast specifically Wealth Steading and not something dealing with only swing trading or trend following or some of the, you know, the other things I tend to dwell on. But the bottom line on building your wealth, having financial freedom and independence, it's all predicated on short-term decisions that you make that build wealth over the long term. And by the long term, you know, I'm talking something like 7 to 20 years. If you go back and listen to some of my early work and you read uh, the wealth building principles I have over at my firm's website, investablewealth.com, I review the three phases of building wealth or the three steps of building wealth, where you start out as an apprentice and then you develop a business model or become an entrepreneur. And then finally, you develop investment income. I talk about these in really broad nature because there's no one particular path. I know people that have built their wealth on real estate. I know people that have built their wealth from small businesses. I, in particular, you know, built most of my wealth through trading in the stock market before I branched out and diversified into other areas. There's no one path to success. The one thing I can pretty much guarantee uh, that I've studied over, you know, I talk about over 30 years, but really the majority of my life and early experiences, I can always think back to, to looking at people and observing them and studying them and saying, how does that person make their income? Why does that guy drive a nice car and live in a nice house and that person is poor and broke and they seem to be living paycheck to paycheck? Why is one person free and independent why does the other person seem to be a slave? That was compelling to me and something that I've always been interested in. So I've, I've really spent a lifetime studying this and living it and evolving through it. And one of those key threads that is woven through this whole story of financial independence and, and building your wealth is that there's no one way to do it. You have to do what you're good at, what you enjoy. You have to have a little luck. Bottom line, you have to come up with some type of products or services that benefit other people. 
As Earl Nightingale used to say, you become rich by first enriching others. And the reason I bring all this up now is because you can only do that by controlling the things that are in your sphere of influence. And that's generally taking things day to day, making more money today, spending less money, saving it, investing it wisely. These are decisions, often little decisions, that you make on a daily basis. It all depends on how talented you are, how lucky you get, to what degree you're actually enriching others, you know, what type of products and services are you creating, and how does the market value them? How good of an investor are you? There's a lot of variables, but the bottom line is it's not going to happen overnight. And so rather than worrying about what the sea levels are going to be at in 10 years or whether the earth is going to cool or heat up in the next five years, I mean, you can spend your life worrying about that. But I'm going to tell you my 30 plus years of experience of studying middle class millionaires and blue collar millionaires and people that in, in a lot of cases started with nothing and became millionaires or multimillionaires or financially independent, you know, before they were 50. You know, not people that got rich quick, but people that built a solid foundation of wealth building principles and, and lived that way. Well, those people didn't spend a lot of time worrying about things that were out of their control. And at the end of the day, because these people focused on things that they could have an impact on, and because they focused on productive activities of developing products and services and engaging in fruitful and successful investment opportunities, because they did those things, they end up being happier individuals and people that can make an impact in their local community and in the lives of the people among them. You know, their family members, their neighbors, their friends. So that's how the successful life is lived, impacting the things that you can do something about. Ah, but I digress. Okay, let me get back on track. Bottom line here, a lot of you are concerned about a lot of things. Some of them are clear and present dangers. Other things, things that are not only unpredictable, you know, just catastrophic black swan events, but they're things that if they occurred, it really wouldn't matter anyways. There's nothing we can do about it. So we're not going to dwell on things like coronal mass ejections or global economic collapse scenarios. We want to focus on the real, the here and now. And there are a couple things that, that are close at hand that could cause problems. But for right now, they're just not worth discussing because we don't know how they're going to play out and there's nothing we can do about them one way or the other. If they do start to go bad using price discovery where we follow the price and volume of specific stocks or sectors of the economy, paying attention to short, near, and long-term trends, looking out across the whole landscape of not only the U.S. economy, but international markets and you know, all those things. There are early warning systems that help protect us, and that's why I'm such a proponent of moving into cash, because I think that that's something that can help you from suffering a catastrophic loss that can take place in the stock market, in the bond market, or any other type of financial market, even the real estate market. If bubbles start bursting, whether they be biotech stocks or international or real estate markets, I mean, you don't want to be in assets at that point. You want to be in cash. And for all the people that are worried about the U.S. dollar being worthless, well, if you really believe that that's going to happen anytime soon, then you really need to not worry about any aspect of the financial markets. And that includes owning gold and silver, because if the economy melts down to the degree where the U.S. dollar becomes absolutely worthless, or whether there's hyperinflation or hyperdeflation or whatever Mad Max scenario so many people are worried about. Well, if that happens anytime soon, 
brother, you got bigger problems than worrying about money. And all the gold or all the silver or all anything isn't going to matter because no one's going to easily weather that storm no matter how prepared they are. There's nothing you can do about it. So don't dwell on things that you have no control over. Things that I'm not concerned about right now that many of you are. The Puerto Rican default. You know what? Puerto Rico, they're bankrupt. We know that. What's the probability of the federal government coming in and bailing them out entirely or 90% or 99% or 87.2%? Well, it's highly likely. It's politically untenable at this point to believe that they're going to just let all the government workers and the pension funds and all the public services in Puerto Rico go broke and default and no one have any police service or trash removal or they're not going to pay the pensions to their police officer. That's not going to happen. Some of the bondholders may lose a little bit of money, but I think at the end of the day, they're all going to get bailed out. They're going to kick the can down the road. I don't think anything's going to come of it. So why talk about it? Looking over to, to Europe, Greece uh, is sometimes creeping back into the headlines. Yes, there's still a threat of a possible default there. Their debt is unsustainable. Well, of course it is. Is the IMF or the ECB or some other entity going to come in and again prop it up, kick the can down the road? Most likely. Even if a place like Puerto Rico or Greece were to 100% fail, those economies are so insignificant in terms of overall global GDP that it doesn't matter. Well, looking at a more significant market, you know, many of you are worried about what happens with, uh, with Great Britain. What if they vote this summer and decide to leave the European Union? You know, what type of catastrophe will that promulgate? Or does that mean that the EU is going to fall apart? I mean, there's just a lot of fear-mongering going on out there. And it doesn't matter to dwell on it. We have to just wait and see how they vote. I suspect that mo many people will just go along with the status quo. They'll stay in the European Union. If they get out, they'll get out. Of course, there'll be repercussions, but none of these are end-of-the-world scenarios. And at this point, I just don't see any value in discussing them. If that changes, if I start to see them really having an impact on the markets that we invest in and that we care about, I'll bring them up. What you have to realize is that since the financial crisis of 2008, on a global scale, we've entered into a central bank Alice in Wonderland where the global bankers have interjected enough money into this economy to prop it up and keep it moving, and they're not going to stop no matter what it takes. Forget about what the United States Federal Reserve has done with our quantitative easing program, which, let me reiterate, is not over. I mean, we talk about QE3 ending in the fourth quarter of 2014, but that's really not true. They're continuing to roll over that debt, that $3.5 trillion or so, whatever's on the balance sheet. None of that has been allowed to mature, so no matter what they do with interest rates, Every month or so, they're reinvesting another $20 billion into U.S. debt instruments, whether that be treasury obligations or whether that be mortgages, that $20 billion a month, which that's real money. That's significant amounts of money. Prior to 2008, nobody would believe that that could even occur on a short-term basis, let alone on a long-term, evergreen, never-ending basis. But that's currently what's happening, and it's not going to go away anytime soon. And it pales in comparison to what's happening in the other three largest economies. Look at Europe, look at Japan, look at China. Europe and Japan have gone to negative interest rates. 
China prints up so much imaginary currencies that it doesn't even matter what they loan at. I think their official rate is something like 4%, but that's just on paper. It's not fiat currency, it's fictional currency. It's beyond belief. Look just to Europe and forget the negative interest rates. People were so concerned when in the U.S. we went to quantitative easing 3 where we were pumping in about $85 billion a month. Now as bad as that may be, that was at least going into a fairly robust economy like the U.S. economy. And that cheap money helped to fuel very productive enterprises. Things like the tech sector and the energy sector. Do you think that if we didn't have all that cheap money, the advances that have been made over the last eight years or so would have occurred in, you know, the tech sector with new products and services coming out of Silicon Valley? That wouldn't have happened or certainly wouldn't have happened to the degree that it's taken place if there wasn't a lot of cheap money flowing through the system. The same thing with the shale oil revolution. One of the primary reasons why this country has almost doubled its oil producing capacity in the last decade is because of low interest rates and all that free money and easy money policies of the banks and the Federal Reserves. That money got funneled into looking for oil because oil was at $120 a barrel. And so it looked like a sure thing payoff. And so wildcatters like Harold Hamm, who had been, you know, spent 25 years developing these type technologies, they suddenly were the beneficiary of all this free and loose money. And the production of oil has, in fact, created a great deal of wealth for the United States. Go back and listen to some previous episodes about what I've said about the shale oil revolution. And just recently, what I talked about with the petrodollar. All those dollars that I talked about that weren't going to Saudi Arabia or Canada or Venezuela, well, that's money that has been kept in the United States. It's created a wealth factor. So those cheap money policies of quantitative easing have benefited the economy in certain productive sectors. Now, they've also been wasted in others, and they were used to prop up the banking system and get more liquidity and stability into the banking system by artificially increasing the value of real estate. But that's irrelevant at this point. The money created from quantitative easing, at least in part, went into some very productive and value-creating enterprises like technology, like energy. That's been one of the major drivers of wealth creation over the last eight years. Now, the reason I'm going down this path and I'm bringing all this up is because that's not what is occurring in Europe or in China or in Japan. The quantitative easing program going on right now with Mario Draghi and the European Central Bank over in Europe right now, where they're pumping close to $90 billion a month into their economy, is not going to fuel the same productive enterprises like energy and high technology that occurred in the United States since 2008. That money is primarily going into sectors of the European economy that are anemic and sclerotic and are in a growth death spiral. The Japanese are not only doing the same thing, but they're doubling and tripling down. They've been doing it for over 25 years without producing any growth. Do you realize that as bad as the quantitative easing program has been and is in the U.S., where we're taking money that's printed by the Federal Reserve, and originally it was used to buy government debt? Okay, that's a bad thing. It shouldn't occur, but it did. 
And as bad as that was, because the crisis was thought to be so bad, and I'm not saying they should have done this, I'm just telling you what they did. They looked at it and they said, hey, this is working, and as bad as it is, and although we shouldn't be monetizing the debt like this, as bad as that is, we said, hey, it's helping the crisis, and so let's expand that, and let's let the Federal Reserve not only go in and buy government debt, let's let them buy mortgage debt, private mortgage debt. Again, this was all about making sure the banking system didn't fail, keeping liquidity and money throwing, flowing through the banks. And what that meant was we had to prop up the real estate market. All the people that defaulted on their loans and got their mortgages foreclosed, they didn't own those, those properties or that real estate or that house. The bank owned it. And the government and the Federal Reserve was not about letting the banks fail. The Federal Reserve is the banks. So they went down that slippery slope. Since they already were buying government debt, it's just a little more of a step to buying private mortgage debt. And so they did that. And now we go over to Europe, and what are they doing? They're not only buying government debt, but they've expanded that, and they're also buying corporate debt. So a company, you know, a European company like Siemens or Nestle's or Total or pick whatever large multinational European brand name you can think of, the European Central Bank is now out there buying that corporate debt. So they're buying government debt from, you know, Italy and Germany and the Netherlands, and they're also buying this corporate debt. That's how much they're worried about falling into deflation and falling into a never-ending spiral of being in recession. And they're doing that to the tune of about $90 billion a month. And then look over to Japan. They've taken that to the next level. Like I said, they've been perfecting this for over 25 years. The Bank of Japan, the, the Japanese central bank, is not only buying government debt and corporate debt, but they've gone to the next level where they're actually buying equities in the Japanese stock market. I've seen one report that says that the Bank of Japan owns as much or maybe even more than 10% in the Japanese stock market. Think about how significant that is. When I say that we're in an Alice in Wonderland central bank economy, I don't say that for hyperbole or for effect or anything. I literally mean this. We are in uncharted territories which are unprecedented and which nobody, and I mean nobody, can have a clear understanding of how we're going to get out of it or which direction these economies are eventually going to take. Now, I know some people are saying, hey, that's just more ammunition for believing that there's going to be an economic collapse or some kind of doomsday scenario. But my argument is exactly the opposite. These governments and these banks will print as much money and manipulate the system and change the rules to whatever degree they have to to keep the global economy afloat. And they won't do that because they care about you or because they're worried about your self-interest. They're just worried about their own. And getting back to what I said about the U.S. banking system, right? The Federal Reserve didn't come in and prop up the economy and help the real estate market because they cared about you. They just didn't want the banking system to melt down because they are the banking system. And so they're not going to let this thing fall apart. And they have the control and the power and the money printing and the assets to keep it afloat. Okay, now I've ventured off on a real tangent I didn't cover the material that I intended to cover in this episode, but I, I really had to get that off my chest, and it may have been a rant, but based on the communications that I hear from people, I think you needed to hear that. I often say, and it's worth repeating right now, before you can take control of your wealth, you have to take control of your own life. So it's about making those little incremental decisions every day. 
learning how to earn more income, learning how to spend less money on things you don't need, and then eventually being a smart investor where you can put that money to work for you. If you want to dwell on conspiracy theories or catastrophic end-of-the-world scenarios from global climate change to economic collapse or whatever it is, then the Wealth Setting Podcast is not for you and I can't help you. But if you are someone that wants to take charge of your life and learn how to build your career or to acquire additional skills where you can offer products and services and maybe someday start your own company and be an entrepreneur, or you want to take the fruits of your labor, the hard-earned income that you've saved, and learn how to invest it better. And my skill is primarily in the stock market. So if that's where your interest is, then you do want to listen to this podcast. And you should apply the 10 wealth building principles that I talk about. And I didn't start out to go down this path. I veered off in a direction that I hadn't anticipated. So let's say this. Since we're already so far into this episode, let's call it an end today. I'll come back in the next episode. We'll wipe the slate clean and I'll pick up from where I intended to start today. I'll talk about what's happening in this market, what sectors we're rotating into and out of, and I'll provide you my thoughts as to why I don't think the volatility's over. I apologize for going down a rabbit hole today, but come on back for the next episode. We'll talk about where this market is headed until then, as always, this is John Pagliano wishing you the very best of returns.